0: You are joining Dr. Gary Crow presents audio tidbits for opinion, learning, and just for fun. Gary is a retired human services administrator, author, trainer, and speaker who is joined by the podcasting team to bring you perspectives, tips, and insights about people doing their best to do their best for others. The team mixes their tidbits with music from Kevin McLeod and special segments just for fun. Please relax and enjoy.
1: In this episode, I'm going to focus on relationships and in particular, our family relationships. During the current virus episode... I think it's really important to think about how we get along with everyone at home, how we get along with each other, particularly since we're mostly not going to, and we're spending a lot of time in pretty close quarters. That can cause a lot of problems, and focusing on our relationships, I think, will help ease the tension and will also make life better as time goes on for all of us. There are a few things that are kind of key to relationships. And let me start by simply mentioning the most important of these elements and how they affect our relationships with other people in general and with our family in particular.
2: Loyalty. Emphasize accommodating to the special needs and interests of people and facilitating the resolution of problems. It's easy here to see how that benefits other people which, of course, is the point. At the same time, though, you also benefit. Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, The most absolute authority is that which penetrates into a man's innermost being and concerns itself no less with his will than with his actions. Sure, if you accommodate to other people and help them work things out, you will feel better about who you are and what you do. It's like Josiah Royce pointed out, unless you can find some sort of loyalty, you cannot find unity and peace in your active living. Caring, emphasize concern for an interest in the activities, successes, and problems of other people. Maxwell Maltz expressed it this way, take the trouble to stop and think of the other person's feelings, his viewpoints, his desires and needs. Think more of what the other fellow wants, and how he must feel. The message is simple. Take time to care, and remember Fred A. Allen's words, It is probably not love that makes the world go around, but rather those mutually supportive alliances through which partners recognize their dependence on each other for the achievement of shared and private goals. Sharing emphasize talking with other people, reciprocal assistance, and mutual problem-solving. As you think about this, a developing theme may bubble up into your consciousness. Listen to the message from Seneca, he that does good to another does good also to himself, if you don't quite hear it yet, let Samuel Smiles say it again, the duty of helping oneself in the highest sense involves the helping of one's neighbors. Respect, emphasize acceptance of other people's beliefs and values, receptivity to their thoughts and ideas, and sensitivity to their feelings and interests. This is a simple principle that Lawrence Stern stated most succinctly, respect for ourselves guides our morals, respect for others guides our manners. The underlying message was also delivered by Uthant, every human being, of whatever origin, of whatever station, deserves respect. We must each respect others even as we respect ourselves. Trust, emphasize giving other people the benefit of the doubt without blaming, accusing, or threatening. George MacDonald's observation, to be trusted is a greater compliment than to be loved, may or may not be true for you. Still, trusting others is a gift you can give to people to let them know that they are valued. At the same time, Shakti Garwin reiterates the what helps other people helps you, theme, when I'm trusting and being myself, everything in my life reflects this by falling into place easily, often miraculously integrity emphasize keeping commitment to an agreements made with other people samuel johnson said there can be no friendship without confidence and no confidence without integrity johnson's message is clear no integrity no confidence no friendship the principle is easy but the reality needs your careful attention titus livius said Men's minds are too ready to excuse guilt in themselves. It's just like J.R. Ewing from the old TV show Dallas said, once integrity goes, the rest is a piece of cake. The take-home message here comes from Socrates, be as you wish to seem. Conflict resolution, emphasize identifying, understanding, and working through conflicts and tensions people experience with you or with each other. As you give this strategy your best effort, it helps to realize that Pierre marche was right, it is not necessary to understand things in order to argue about them, this lets you know that reason usually isn't going to resolve the conflict. If not reason, then what? Seneca found what is likely the essence of conflict resolution, there is nothing so disagreeable, That a patient mind cannot find some solace for it, a bit of solace and a lot of patience really does go a long way toward calming most heated situations. Getting everyone's attention and quoting Vernon Howard might be slightly over the top. We must become acquainted with our emotional household, we must see our feelings as they actually are, not as we assume they are. This breaks their hypnotic and damaging hold on us, but your keeping Howard's point in mind certainly can't hurt. Along with that, two additional grains of wisdom will add to your odds of success. First, Andre Morois said, The difficult part in an argument is not to defend one's opinion, but rather to know it. If you combine that with the words of Albert Hubbard, you may not be on the exact, right track, but you are headed in the right direction. What people need and what they want may be very different. Now you know and there you go. Let's
1: shift our attention now
2: to marriage. The concept
1: applies to all ongoing, intimate adult relationships. The notion is that the relationship is multidimensional. It has at least three dimensions. And unless we pay careful attention to all three dimensions, the relationship itself is in serious jeopardy. The
3: Marriage Triangle There's one said truth in life I've found while journeying east and west, the only folks we really wound are those who love the best. We flatter those we scarcely know, we please the fleeting guest, and deal full many a thoughtless blow to those who love us best, Ella Wheeler Wilcox. Think of your marriage as a triangle with lovers, friends, and partners as its sides. Love, then, is the force that binds the sides together, the key to richness and risk danger and opportunity, and you are the guardian of the key. But, what happened? You used to be friends, knew what kind of reactions you were going to get from each other and how things would go. Your world wasn't always rosy, but the two of you could handle it. When things weren't going well, you talked about it. You worked it out, but lately both of you are tied up in knots. You are always on edge, and you could cut the tension with a knife. Anymore, you don't even go through the motions of caring about each other's feelings or acting like you care what is being said. It's just one of those things, but if your friendship's going down the tube isn't anyone's fault, then nurturing your friendship wasn't anyone's responsibility. Your partnership is a shared responsibility too and can go down the tube with your friendship. So what happened? You used to be great partners, would talk and decide together what was important what your priorities were. You were always upfront with each other about what you thought about things and were open to the other's ideas and opinions. You didn't always agree but it worked. If there were problems, you worked them out and didn't blame or accuse or threaten. You were a team, always found a solution you both could live with, but you were trying a little harder, gave a little more, and were more responsible than your partner. That wasn't fair and is why you quit trying. Oh well, it's just another one of those things, even though you know that when either of you gives up on your partnership, that is all she wrote, as they say. It may be all she wrote for your being lovers as well. You know how it goes. It's just one of those things. Sure, it used to be magic. You and your lover each knew what the other wanted, how to scratch the itch, so to speak. Lovemaking was passion at its best and most intense. You were considerate of each other's feelings, each other's needs. No one was in charge, no one gave more or got less. It wasn't that kind of thing anyway. It was magic and you took turns being the magician, but one thing led to another and then to another and it was gone, but now you finally get it, even if a bit late. Just as beauty is in the eye of the beholder, love is in the heart of the one who is loving. That is why when you feel the magic slipping away, You need to concentrate more on being a better lover than on being loved better. Dinah Shore really was right when she said, Trouble is part of your life, and if you don't share it, you don't give the person who loves you enough chance to love you enough.
1: The next tidbit makes a pretty interesting point that is really easily overlooked, especially when having arguments or disagreements with children. In most arguments, there is some point to both sides of the argument. People are usually not completely wrong or completely right. The same holds for kids. When we get into an argument or a disagreement with them, we need to stop and think about this particular issue. To what extent is what they are saying? To what extent is their position actually correct? and we are actually wrong. If we could stop and think about that first, we might save a lot of stress, a lot of distress with our kids. Here we go. Both may be right.
4: In every dispute between parent and child, both cannot be right, but they may be, and usually are, both wrong. It is this situation which gives family life its peculiar hysterical charm. Isaac Rosenfeld, Rosenfeld almost got it right, but not quite. Certainly, in every dispute between parent and child, both may be wrong. It's also true that they both may be right, and to some extent, they usually are. Although parent-child disputes are typically treated as a special category, they are better understood merely as disputes, not particularly different from other disputes. Quite simply, people are disagreeing. That's all there is to it. When parents and children disagree, the dispute is viewed differently than other disagreements. In the latter, there is an assumed balance or parity between the participants. In the former, there is a strong tendency to assume that the parent is right and the child is wrong. For the child to pursue the contrary view is disrespectful. When adults disagree, they seldom dispute the observable facts. They are usually disagreeing about the correct interpretation, meaning, or significance of those facts. When parents and children disagree, it's usually over enough, early enough, late enough, clean enough, good enough, well enough, and so on. Even so, the dispute represents a difference in point of view, opinion, or interpretation. The point is that the issue is normally not the kind of situation where someone is right and someone is wrong. Both parties are at least partially right. Instead of understanding it as a dispute or argument, it needs to be seen as a negotiation, not dissimilar from any other negotiation. This converts most parent-child disputes to either negotiations or unilateral decision-making. The parents either negotiate or lay down the law, so to speak. There is no dispute or argument. Deciding which is appropriate is difficult, but Virginia Satter has a perspective that helps. Feelings of worth can flourish only in an atmosphere where individual differences are appreciated. Mistakes are tolerated, communication is open, and rules are flexible, the kind of atmosphere that is found in a nurturing family. Of course, Sidoni Grunberg was right. Home is the place where boys and girls first learn how to limit their wishes, abide by rules, and consider the rights and needs of others. But Thomas Moore was also right. Family life is full of major and minor crises, the ups and downs of health, success and failure in career, marriage, and divorce, and all kinds of characters. It is tied to places and events and histories. With all of these felt details, life etches itself into memory and personality. It's difficult to imagine anything more nourishing to the soul. The conclusion is this. Lay down the law with your children, when you must, the rest of the time, negotiate, using the same tact and interpersonal charm you use with everyone else with whom you occasionally
1: disagree. Let's stop and give some thought to our relationships and particularly to our relationships with our children. What does that relationship mean right now? What is the goal for that relationship right now? How do we value that relationship right now?
5: All happy families resemble one another. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Leo Tolstoy. Your family is like other families in many ways. It has its ups and downs, strengths and vulnerabilities, its problems and opportunities. Your family is not perfect nor is it without its moments of perfection. As is true for other families, yours is somewhere between what you hope it can be and what you sometimes fear it might become. Buddha expressed the tension of hope and fear like this. A family is a place where minds come in contact with one another. If these minds love one another the home will be as beautiful as a flower garden. But if these minds get out of harmony with one another it is like a storm that plays havoc with the garden, Tolstoy's happy family, Buddha's beautiful flower garden, and your hopes symbolize the potential for harmony and well-being for you and yours. Just as your child wants your unconditional love and encouragement, you want him to love you, to love himself, to love other people, and to love the world around him. You express your love through hugs, playing, and doing things together. You encourage him to share his feelings, fears, and frustrations. At the same time, you give him the freedom to grow and to experience the bigger world. You want him to have an exciting life of his own, knowing that his relationship with you is secure and predictable. In addition, you want your child to respect you, to respect himself, to respect other people and to respect the world about him. You know that much of his attitude toward himself and toward the world about him comes from your attitude about him. Just as children learn to love by being loved, they learn respect for self and others by being respected. Your behavior, attitudes, and beliefs will be reflected in your child. More than you may ever know, he does as you do. Children also develop attitudes toward themselves and others as a response to the attitudes and beliefs others communicate to them. In part, your child will become what you tell him he will become. You convey this definition of self through your physical, emotional, spiritual, and social interactions with him as well as through the way you relate as his parent. Beyond these things, there is a whole world of influences over which you have little control Your hope must be that you have nourished and nurtured your child's potential so that he can effectively deal with the multiple influences of the world. You hope that your loving respect has been strong enough and clear enough to be integrated into his being as he moves out into the world and may not perceive him as unique. His sense of being special comes from you. You can only trust that it is solid enough to last him a lifetime.
1: The next two tidbits loop us back to focus on adult relationships. I think they can stand on their own.
6: The Loving Touch. Chains do not hold a marriage together. It is threads, hundreds of tiny threads which sew people together through the years, Simone's ignore it. The tiny threads that sew you and your beloved together are intimate and very private, and The Loving Touch is definitely one of those tiny threads that bind you to each other. It comes in many forms and flavors from a sentimental card or candy in a pretty box to a warm embrace. Flowers and a romantic dinner work as well. Whatever form it takes, a loving touch means that it's an uncommon moment, a moment for special friends and lovers. But alas, the cards will be read and the candy eaten, expensive presents discarded and sincere words forgotten. In time the flowers will wilt and the romantic dinner become but yesterday's fond memory. Something more is needed, a loving touch not to fade, not to be forgotten. It needs to provide that special advantage that Judith Viast said marriage brings to the two of you. One advantage of marriage is that, when you fall out of love with him or he falls out of love with you, it keeps you together until you fall in again. To sustain your love until you fall in love again, the loving touch needs to last longer than the day and keep reminding, keep saying, I love you. This spirit is hard to capture in a well-intended gift or simple verse. It isn't to be found in things you can touch and hold. Rather, the spirit of the loving touch is in the tie that binds. It is hard to define but impossible to miss. The loving touch that lasts, the kind that keeps saying, I love you, is filled with added value that lasts far beyond the moment. What are these extras that make the loving touch linger past the moment? The added value includes affection any time your beloved needs a hug, and just as your beloved accepts you, waltz and all, it's a two-way street. There are also our ingredients far less adult, far less mature. They are playful and gentle, spontaneous and mischievous. They are full of fun and good times, private games and warm summer evenings. These ingredients are for you and your beloved and for all the little kids like you who have to sometimes act your age, be adults, and take care of business. You do what you need to do as best you can, but when the child in you gets to hang out with the child who lives deep within your beloved, life
1: is at its best. For our last two tidbits, our focus turns back to our children.
7: The question for the child is not who I want to be good but whom do I want to be like? Bruno Bettelheim. A second question could be added to Bettelheim's insight. By whom do I want to be accepted as children grow? The answer to this question becomes the answer to whom do I want to be like? Kids actively try to be like the people by whom they most want to be accepted. This includes many adult role models at home, at school, and most anywhere the child spends time. Importantly, though, it also includes the children with whom your child wants to be friends. The kids your child seeks out as friends and how skilled he is at friend picking is one of the least explored but most critical dimensions affecting whether he is good or not and how he understands the meaning of being good. When all is said and done, he will be as much like his friends as like you. As Oliver Wendell Holmes suggested, imitation is a necessity of human nature, and your child is imitating his friends. Muhammad Ali pointed out that it's not easy to say exactly what a friend is. Friendship is the hardest thing in the world to explain. It's not something you learn in school. But if you haven't learned the meaning of friendship, you really haven't learned anything. It may not actually be the hardest thing in the world to explain, but it's definitely among the most difficult. Henry David Thoreau said. The language of friendship is not words but meanings, this doesn't exactly explain what being a friend means either, but it points to an important element. Your children need to learn that friendship is based on action and meaning and not on words and promises. Albert Camus added another element when he said, don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend, this extends understanding but still doesn't complete the definition. What you quickly see is that friendship has many elements and learning about them is complicated. The problem with this is that most kids are learning about friends and friendship mostly from other kids. Sure, parents and teachers are helping them learn how to behave, what's right and what's wrong, what to do and not do, and on and on. Still, they are daily learning about friends and friendship. What's more, other kids are their homeroom teachers, do you know
8: your child's teacher? Pass it along. If you will think about what you want to do for other people, your character will take care of itself. Character is a byproduct, and any man who devotes himself to its cultivation in his own case will become a selfish prig, Woodrow Wilson. As you think about what you want to do for other people, passing your character along to your children and to other kids with whom you have contact is both a responsibility and an opportunity. Children don't come into the world with their character prepackaged, rather, it develops and evolves through their early years character is learned and thus, is taught. Yes, some kids learn faster and more completely than others, but learn they do. William J. Bennett clearly understood this teaching learning process when he said, If we want our children to possess the traits of character we most admire, we need to teach them what those traits are and why they deserve both admiration and allegiance. Children must learn to identify the forms and content of those traits. First, do you know what character is and are you passing it on? It was passed on to you when you were a kid, and now it's your turn. The youngster may live at your house, deliver your paper, be playing across the street, or just walk by, but pass IT on you do. Are you warm and gentle, friendly and accepting? If so, it feels like acceptance and being valued, inclusion and being important. If you are cold and indifferent, detached and suspicious, it feels like, well, you know how IT feels. That is why you need to pass your character on very carefully, especially to young people. When describing character, Abraham Lincoln said, Character is like a tree and reputation like its shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. Your responsibility is to guide and nurture the growth of the tree of character in your children so it casts a clear, stable, unambiguous shadow in the child's world. Both the tree and its shadow need to incorporate the values, beliefs, priorities, and choices that you have passed on. This is, as Plutarch suggested, not an event but is, rather, something that builds, day to day. Character is simply habit long continued. The same point was also echoed by Ralph Waldo Emerson, the force of character is cumulative. Next, as you pass character on to your children, remember that you are the model. To be a great model, you have to walk the walk, talk the talk, have all the right moves, and amaze your fans. If you have kids or hang around with someone who does, you have already got an enthusiastic following, and follow you they will. Given time, they will walk your walk, talk your talk, and your moves will be theirs. You are the model and they are your work in progress. How is your creation coming along? If you don't have it quite right yet, it will help to know that you need to give more emphasis to being a better model for kids than to molding them. They will do as you do. As the famous Anonymous reminds, the acorn never falls far from the tree.
0: Thanks for joining us for Dr. Gary Crow presents Audio Tidbits. To get in touch, email gary at garycrow.net. Visit www.garycrow.net for more tidbits and ways to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. We'll talk again soon.